0: Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for tuning into our podcast.
1: We're a church for imperfect people only.
0: We're in our series, LA is Corinth. Because as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we see so many similarities between that city and ours. Like LA, it was a port city filled with wealth and immigration. It was a sports capital second only to the Olympics. Like LA, it was extremely sexualized with Aphrodite as the goddess of love and her temple just outside the city. A part of worshiping her was sleeping with one of her 1,000 priestesses. Lastly, like LA, the church was deeply divided along political lines. Sound familiar? And the whole time, Paul is trying to call the community of Christ to live Christian values in the midst of this culture, and it's a fight. As we walk through this letter, we are encouraged and called in the same ways to live for Jesus while living in L.A. As we go through 1 Corinthians, we're talking today about singlehood, and we've we talked about marriage and sex over the last uh, couple weeks. And so um, today's question is, what are or were some advantages of being single as you think back maybe prior to being married? And when I talk about single, it includes dating as well. What were or are some hard things about singleness? And so, again, we'd love for you to break off into groups of threes, uh, maybe fours, and, or twos, and uh, share through some of these questions, and then we'll come up and continue our series in First Corinthians. Close friends growing up, they were my groomsmen. That would have been a good picture, a picture of my groomsmen. So one was named, uh, one's name is Ernest, actually Ben Lee's brother-in-law, uh, Caleb. Um, my clo- one of my closest friends, and then Garland as well. And we were just kind of a pact. We all hung out together. And I remember Caleb getting a girlfriend. And it was very confusing to me because <laughs> we hung out every single day. Like, I was at his house every day over the summer. We'd go everywhere together. He had a car. I didn't. So, you know, that one song about the best friends. Anyways. And then so, anyways, I was always hanging out with him. And then one day he got a girlfriend. And I, I, was, I became like the jealous best girlfriend where every time they went to hang out or I call and I had to wait on the phone because he was busy talking to his girlfriend, I would just feel so upset with him. And I remember literally we had a conversation where I called him because there was this great movie coming out on a, at AMC. Remember movies at AMC where you go into this packed area? Anyways, so I called him and I was like, hey, Caleb, let's go to this movie together. He's like, oh, I'm going with my girlfriend. And I was like, can I come as well? And I was like dead serious. It was not a joke. I was like, I too would like to go with you and your girlfriend. And he said, um, he had to like really gently explain to me why I couldn't come. And I was like so sad that day. I was devastated that he chose this girl over his bro. So he betrayed me. And then uh, Ernest betrayed me when he started dating Ben's sister, Stephanie. They started going on double dates, and I was, like, really devastated. But then I had one more friend. His name's Garland. And he saw how I was, like, going into depression. So he said, Wil- Wilson, I will not date until you date. Right? I will wait for you. We'll be bros. Like, I'm just going to hold off on my dating life until you get a girlfriend. So I was very appreciative of him. And literally a year later, we were sitting kind of, like, on a step like this. And he's like, Wilson, I have really bad news. I was like, what happened? And he said, I got a girlfriend. And I said this. No! Like that. I'm not kidding. I did that. Like the panning out of a movie where someone's yelling. That was me and him. And I literally scared him. Like he jumped backwards because he didn't think I would just scream at the top of my lungs. Like usually people keep in their anguish, right? And so I just, I, and now I was single for years and years. Nina took forever to find me. Um... I I wonder if if you have felt just how hard it can be to be single, and over your singleness, you just wanted to be uh, to have a girlfriend or to be married, because our society has such a high view of of dating, of romance, of marriage. Romance isn't just about finding someone to spend the rest of your life with. It's so much bigger than that, Ernest. Ernest Becker, he's an American cultural anthropologist, and he talks about how our society, in it becoming secular, has found deep insignificance in our life, that when you stop believing in God, we're just kind of a random grouping of atoms flying through the universe, that when we left God for significance and importance and value, we found ourselves clinging onto everything else and finding that they became empty except, except for romance. Romance became this, our new God, our new religion, the new thing that would say that there's something meaningful in our lives. And so we put our weight and our love behind that. So this is what he says about secular people. We secular people still know, need to know that our life matters. In the grand scheme of things, we still want to merge ourselves in some higher meaning and trust and gratitude. But if we no longer have God, how do we do this? One of the first ways that occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. That self-glorification that humans need in our innermost being. Now looked not to God, but in a love partner. And here's the quote I have up. What is it that we want when we elevate the loved partner into this position? We want to be rid of our flaws. We want to be rid of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence is not, has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Ernest Becker is saying that for those who are secular, for those who are atheists, That romance is the closest thing we can have to significance and to importance in our lives. But this concept, of course, infiltrates the church in which we reside as well. So it's become a part of our Christian uh, lifestyle. This elevation of marriage and romance way above what the Bible teaches in many ways. You know, when we look at Roman culture, when we look at the context of Of the Corinth church singleness was even um, was even more shunned uh, had even less value was marked by insignificance um, in a greater degree than what Ernest Becker is talking about when you look at the ancient world they resided in communities and so it was the family that was honored and had identity and could achieve that the individual had no significance outside of the family, and actually um, Caesar Augustine would find widows within two years if they didn't remarry. Can you believe that? so it was, in some ways it was like illegal to be single and so so in the face of that culture and in many ways ours, Paul elevates singleness and Tim Keller would say there was no religious system or philosophy that that gave value to singleness, but Paul does. We talked about sex and huge value in in the way that Paul describes it, marriage as well. And then he says, but you could also be single. It's a totally legitimate way to live out your life. And in many ways, it's even better. He doesn't just espouse this to the Corinth church. But he had the church stand ready to sustain the widows when they lost their husbands. He actually allowed them to have the financial freedom in order to decide whether or not to remarry. That's the value in which Paul gives singleness. So it was a completely different paradigm than everything that was offered in culture and religion and in philosophy. The older you get, the more you appreciate someone being able to think outside of their culture. It it feels impossible, Um, and Paul does that, of course, because of the Lord. A lot of my research, I just uh, borrowed from Tim Keller, stole, Um, and so if you want to, again, hear a better version of the sermon, Sexuality and the Christian Hope, you can uh, get that on your local podcast, and he just it's like reading it's like hearing him read a commentary. That's how he preaches. We don't get many Tim Keller's in a lifetime, so I would love for you to listen to that sermon. Okay, so the next part is Tim Keller again and and Paul looks at singleness as an advantage, and this is how he espouses this in First Corinthians chapter seven verse 25 he says, "Now about virgins, and you could." Think of that interchangeably as people who are single. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one whom by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look uh, for a wife. If you do look for a wife, you have not sinned if a virgin married, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles, it is true, in this life. And I want to spare you of this. So Paul is actually leaning towards singleness. He's saying that this isn't a theological doctrine. It's not a sin sin to be married. But if I were to give you an advice, uh, advice as a pastor, this is what Paul's saying. Consider, seriously consider being single. Again, a totally different concept than the culture he was um, was involved in. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short, and from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its Present form is passing away. So, what Paul is doing is he's putting marriage in all of these categories that we can often cling to to find significance and redemption. We can cling to um, emotional highs. We can cling to our careers. We can cling to the things that we buy. And what Paul is saying is just like marriage, these things. Are not where you're supposed to find your ultimate significance and identity. And yet, that's where all of Corinth and maybe Rome was finding their significance and identity in wealth and happiness and friendship and marriage and fame. The the Corinth people would come to, all of Rome would come to Corinth for trade, for um, excursions, for entertainment, and, and Corinth offered them fulfillment whether they were looking at fulfillment f- in wealth or happiness or sex, they could get it in Corinth. So Corinth was, again, one of the wealthiest um, cities in the ancient world. You had to pass through Corinth in order to trade around the world. And Corinth was kind of one of those huge port cities. There was a, a saying in, in, in that time period where if you wanted to meet all of the Roman Empire, you would just sp- stand long enough in the city square of Corinth. You could meet the whole world. And so there was all of these opportunities to gain wealth because of the trade there. You could find your career. You can be happy that way. You could also obtain fame. The second games to the Olympics was held in Corinth. They had a stadium of 12,000 people. They had a concert hall of 3,000. You could be an influencer. You could be famous in Corinth. And of course, sex was abundant. And what Paul is saying is that this world in its present form is passing away. The word form means mask. It means a facade, something that, that deceives people, right? It's, it's, it's in front of them saying something, but it actually holds nothing behind it. And he's saying that the mask of Corinth is being peeled away for those who are Christian. That you used to believe these things would give you significance and redemption. But when you become a Christian, you start holding those things with open hands. You don't believe in them the way you used to. They've lost their shine. They've lost their allure. You're not banking your life and your purpose on those things anymore. On your career, on your fame, on your wealth, and even on marriage. You know, I used to um, be addicted to gambling. Some of you guys knew that already. It was about a 10-year stint, 15 years ago, by the way. So as you give to renew, do not worry about your tithe. Um, But for 10 years, I loved going to casinos. I loved playing online poker. And um, I consider myself a high roller, you know. Our our games at the height of my gambling addiction was uh, about a $500 buy-in. And it was pretty reckless tables where, you know, I could see a turn card and it would, be, it would cost like a thousand bucks. There were many pots over the course of an hour that would be a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars in order to participate in. So that was the height of my um, gambling career. And so on the next slide is a, is a slide of, all the, is the, of the casinos in Vegas. I think it's in there. And I remember going to look going to a casino, and I would just feel my ad- adrenaline pumping. And I could spend the whole day there, um, and I wanted the wealth that it was showing me like all the dollar signs, the people walking away with cases of chips. I've done that a few times, winning a tournament that would give you like 20k, right? So I participated in the allure of a casino. For the Lord, of course. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to be financially independent so I could serve the church. And so all these Christian justifications, those make the best uh sinful lifestyles. So, um so I just loved being in there. I had friends there. The the I was a regular. The all the workers would greet me. I was very friendly. You know, looking for gospel opportunities. And so so that was that was my life for a while. I spent about 20 hours a week trying to become a poker pro in order to fund fund ministry. And then thankfully over therapy and prayer and like some rebukes from close friends and um, I ended up becoming sober, again, for about 15 years. And now when I walk into Vegas, now when I walk into a casino, I see it in a totally different way. You know, usually I'm just beelining to the buffet. But I look around at, uh, like, the Venetian was one that I went to a few years ago. And I just see the plastic of the architecture. It's not real marble. Or the the, the ceiling isn't, it's not like Rome, where, um, where every piece of the architecture is carved and there's love behind it. It's just black. It's like they're just saving money at the very top of the roof and everything else is a facade, is an illusion. And the worst part is looking around and seeing the people. I remember when I was uh, addicted, I was waiting in line for the ATM and there was a woman who opened up her, her purse, you know, it was like the long wallet, and there was probably 30 credit card stuff in there. And she was pulling them out one at a time and she couldn't get money out of the machine. And they were from the most random banks. Um, it wasn't Chase or Wells Fargo. It was banks I've never heard of. And then now when I go into a casino, I look around. There's, of course, like, people who are on vacation dressed up. But the majority of people have shirts with holes in it. Their eyes are glazed over. It's like they've been there for six hours pulling on a stick, ho- hoping for their life to change. There's men who uh, come in and and it's like they just came off the street after asking for money. Now they're giving it back to the casino who had taken it in the first place. And then the worst part about Vegas is driving out. I don't know if you have ever driven out of Vegas, stopped for gas. And there's like slot machines in the gas station. Have you seen that? And there's people playing in those slot machines. I'm like, this is the Irvine of hell. Like this is <laughs> this is the suburbia of hell. If you go to hell and you and you go out like 40 miles into suburbia, it's that it's that slot machine. It's the slot machine at a dirty gas station with piss everywhere, and you're still playing slots there. And that's my new menu, especially coming out from an addiction. Right? Like I'm not I'm. Tur- if you go to Vegas and you play a couple hundred bucks at a at a at a table I'm not, you know, that's not a big deal to me. But I was an addict, okay? And so when I look at Vegas, all of the promises that I had held onto, all of the lore, all of the shine and the glitz and the hope, the redemption that it held for me is pulled away. It's empty now to me. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying that the world is in its present form, is passing away. That there was this mask that you can find significance and value and, and find yourself in, the, in what Corinth had to offer. But when you became a Christian, that was pulled away. And you knew that you needed Jesus. And for Paul, marriage is a part of that category too. Kids are a part of that category It's this throwback to Ecclesiastes where Solomon goes after every part of life. Women and education and fame and achievements and at the end of every road, he says there's nothing, there's nothing really there that will deeply satisfy my soul. I I just love um, Peter's calling where he's out on a boat. He can't he can't get any fish in his net, which is every fisherman's dream, right, is to catch huge fish. And Jesus is like, throw it on the other side. 180-some fish jump in. Uh, the Bible says they were large. He had to ask for help. And I think in this moment, Peter got everything any fisherman could ever want. He got the big fish story, and it was true. He could walk into his local bar and see that plaque on the wall, best fisherman of the year, right? And then Jesus says, um, Follow me and I will make you a fisherman then. I think Jesus gives Peter everything he's ever dreamt of to show him how small his dreams were. And then he goes on a journey with Jesus where he sees the dead raised and arms grow back. He turns the kingdom of this world upside down. And if you were to ask Jesus, what was, your, what was the greatest miracle you witnessed and participated in He wouldn't say, oh, like that fish story was amazing. But that's all he lived for. And now it was the most insignificant part of his life. And that's the journey God's calling all of us on to let go of the dreams that this world has to offer you for the dreams of God. To be able to stand before the throne and say, Jesus, I lived all the dreams you had for me. I wasn't just catching fish. And Paul says you could do that better if you're single. (laughs) Uh, Verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affair. How he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How he can please his wife. It's true. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of, her, of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in the right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. So there's two ways in which singleness is an advantage. The first way is that you can grow uniquely in your dependence on Jesus. And become whole in him. You can have this undivided devotion to the Lord. Where your aim um, is, to, is for the Lord and the Lord alone. You know, when I think about my closest friendships. There are people who, we don't have to say anything. We don't have to do anything. The people that I love most in my life are people where my soul can just sit next to theirs. And there's a unique feeling and presence I gain from them because of the intimacy we share. And I could sit with them for hours because I just love their presence. And no one can gift me with their presence except for them. Do you have friends, family in your life that you just love sitting with, that when they're gone, you miss them, and no one can replace them? That's how I knew to marry Nina. Because I would sit with her and be with her for days and days on end and be like, I still like being with you. You know, we spend, spend 14 hours together and I'm like, can I pick you up tomorrow? And she's like, all right. You know, <laughs> I don't know if she wanted to be with me that long. Maybe the greatest grief I have with um, just being a religious person is that maybe you've not learned to love Jesus in that way. That the best part of being Christian, the best part of him forgiving your sins, the best part of being family with God is to sit with Jesus and to love his presence. To allow him who lives inside of you to expand into all of the crevices of your day, the big and the small moments. And you being with Jesus is what fills you in a way that no one else in the world can. Being with Jesus soul to soul. And just loving his presence. And what Paul is saying is that for you who are single and for all of us who know the Lord, maybe it's worth being with him in an undivided way over, your hu- over a future husband and wife and kids. That you've fallen with Jesus, in love with Jesus so deeply that you'd rather just be with Him, instead of um, giving, dividing your heart to another person. He said, "Consider that." This monk that was being interviewed by Pete Sciosero said, "It's not that I want to live a simplistic lifestyle so that I can be uh, not be busy with the world." He says, "I'm living a monastic life, lifestyle because I'm so busy with Jesus." giving my ears and my heart and my affection to him that I don't want to do anything else, that I don't want to participate in the busyness of this world. Um, Do you love Jesus like that? Or are you still trying to find a boyfriend or girlfriend to fulfill you in the way he is to do it? Some of us are single for a season, and I think in that singleness, how do we contend with loving Jesus like that so that he's giving us significance and identity and purpose? And then when we're dating someone else, we're not asking them of those things. They're a part of their li- our lives. They're not the fullness of us. We can do what Paul says, oh, have them with open hands. Because if they are to be your redemption, if they are to take away your flaws and to complete you, you're going to crush your significant other. No one except God can do that. So if you're not doing that with the Lord and you're trying to do that with someone else, you will crush them and they will crush you. So whether you're single forever because you just love being with Jesus. Or whether you're single for a season because you want to be in a healthy relationship with the people around you. Learn Learn to be with God and to find all things in and through him. Um, I think about Levi. So Levi, I pick him up in the morning, um, and, and he guides me towards either when he's on my shoulder with my ears, like he'll turn me and pull and then I'll go like a horse. And then, uh, or I'll hold him like this and he just leans and points to where he wants to go. And I almost subconsciously just go where he wants. So every morning he leads me to milk because that's what he wants. He, he loves milk when he wakes up. And as he's leaning and pointing and I'm just like, just walking towards milk, I'm like, oh, mom's up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have him, you know, kiss and give a hug towards mom. And as I put him in front of mom, he just cries, he's bent over, he's in anguish, because what he really wants is milk. It's not that he doesn't love mom, but in this moment, it's like he hates mom because he loves milk so much. Jesus is like, love me so much, so so as to hate your own family. Just like Levi, has his whole heart pointed towards milk, to the neglect of his own mother who gave him birth. Jesus is like, love me as Levi loves milk. I have a song about that, Gregorian chant. I know it's hard to conceptualize, and and it feels abstract, and for some of you, you're like, okay, that sounds great, where do I start? Well, at 7 a.m. every single day from Monday through Friday, I want to guide you into that process. Every single day you get to do devotionals with me and Pastor Chrissy and Joey and Daniel You and it's been some of the best moments of my day. Give up your last three hours of anime to wake up three hours early and hang out with us. And, and that's what we do, we step back and we spend times of silence just sitting in front of Jesus. We spend time together to talk about Jesus. And that time with the Lord has, has, has bled into all of the small moments so that I'm not on my phone anymore, so that I'm, I'm silent as I uh, drive so I can hear the voice of Jesus, so that I can be more present with him in all the in-betweens and then invite him into the big moments as well. So again, if you're having a hard time doing that, come to us before work, sit in, participate, and just... Be a part of that time, many many of you have developed that rhythm in your life, but if you haven't let me help you develop that at seven am All right, the second part uh, the second advantage we have in our singleness is to serve God and to advance His kingdom that as we 're with Jesus. Um, And find our significance and value in him and purpose. He then purposes all of these good things in our life, right? Paul doesn't say stop mourning. He doesn't say stop buying things. He doesn't say stop being married. But he's saying do it in a different way. Cling to Jesus and then do all the other things. Instead of clinging to those things. How is Jesus informing your wealth? How is Jesus purposing your career towards him? How is Jesus allowing your friendships to expand his kingdom? The friends that I invest in the deepest, that I spend the most time with, I'm asking that question. Is our friendship pushing God's kingdom forward? You know, maybe when you're hanging out, uh, one of the the guys went out shooting two Sundays ago, or two Saturdays ago, and, and the women do brunch together, and we just have found so many organic ways to do ministry. And if we repurpose that and say, as we do life together, can we invite someone who doesn't know Jesus, or who, who's felt very isolated from COVID into our space to find community and to find the Lord, into our friendships. And, Jesus, and what Paul is saying is that we can do that best in our singleness. He says that an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affair instead of, and how he can please the Lord, whereas a married man is concerned about the affairs of his wife how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. When you're single, you have more freedom, more autonomy, more energy, more time, more money than if you were married with kids. I know some of you are extremely busy, but if you were a dad, you would, it would be worse. <laughs> and in that autonomy and freedom, right, some people are like, I want to I wanna be single so that I can have freedom, autonomy, and time for me. I can use it for the things I enjoy. I can really delve into my hobbies. I can spend every evening the way I want to spend it. But Paul's saying that you have that for the Lord. He's saying that singleness is advantage not because you, just because you have more time and autonomy, but because you have that to spend on the Lord. You have it for him. And you can pursue ministry in a different way. You know, I have quite a few friends who felt called to overseas missions. But after they got married, they compromised a lot of that calling. Um, they ended up staying in the stateside and serving God faithfully here. But if they were single, they could fulfill some of that original calling and dreams that God had put on their heart. But when you're married, you're torn and you're divided and you compromise and you're supposed to. And, God, and Paul just admits that as a reality. So how so? all of us, when we're married and when we have kids especially, there are aspects of our dreams and our ambitions and even our capacity that gets cut short um, for the kingdom and service that we give to our family. But Paul says, as you are single, gift that to the Lord first. Take advantage of the, of the freedom and autonomy and the time that you have. I wrestled with this next uh, slide because I feel like I'm showing off a little bit. And it, it's probably, that's probably a part of my motive. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how you guys are going to receive this. But anyways, in my singleness, I, I saw myself take advantage. And these are, this is a highlight reel, right? So just have that in mind. I struggled a lot in my singleness as well. You know, my addiction was the worst it was ever in my singleness. But there were these moments where I think in our singleness, God wants us to take risks to go on adventures, to go all out. We don't have to ask for permission, right? Think about all the places I traveled to, Ghana, Singapore, China three times, and Indonesia, Vietnam twice, Mexico a few times, uh, DC, Texas, Hawaii, and Seattle, all for preaching engagements. When DC called me to preach, I just packed a bag and went. Like, I didn't have to ask for permission, you know? And all of these trips, I don't know if many of them are even conceivable with children. Or it would be, like, way more sacrificial. And Nina and I would have to talk for months over it. But when I'm single, I get to serve the Lord in radical ways overseas. In high school, um, by God's grace, we started a prayer movement from four. And then a year later, it was 70 to 90 high school kids in front of Dinebar High School. I gathered 10 Christian club presidents when I was a senior and cast vision for prayer meetings and we saw 10 to 12 prayer meetings uh, erupt in in our area from from Wilson High School Daniel you led that all the way to Ayala all the way down to uni and we gathered for prayer praise nights of thou, of a thousand um, it was amazing and 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 then uh, in college I went into oh and then for prayer the prayer movement I met someone ten years later who was going to Diamond Bar High School and and they were still praying together. He would still he participated in the prayer meeting that I got to launch. And he didn't even know who I was. He didn't know how it began. It just kind of always was there for him. Uh, in college, I started doing prison ministry at Camp Pendleton. I went to Union Rescue Mission with our junior hires, um, and I cut my teeth preaching to um, to homeless people. The suburban kid, nineteen, twenty. Trying to relate to homeless people who've gone through so much more life and experience than I did, believing that if I loved them, if I shared the gospel with them, if I preached scripture to them, that God would reach them. And I remember every time I walked off stage, people would come up and ask me for prayer because they were they just they just needed the Lord. We uh, went up stairs. We were always playing. We got to play with the kids who were living at that facility who were homeless. And um, there was just such a need to be seen and love and to have attention. <clears throat> In seminary, I went to Maryville Group Home, again, with our junior hires and high schoolers. They did a lot with me, um, lots of adventures, and we served the kids there. Post-seminary, um, I was a chaplain for Trinity Law School, and also we started up Epic. And pretty much none of these things I felt like I was uniquely qualified to do. I just raised my hand and said, Lord, I am available. I have time, energy, and autonomy. How do you want to use me? And I believe that he will give you, especially in your singleness, great dreams and adventures that you can leverage and take risks in ways that none of us who are married can, or it's very difficult to do it. And that he has great adventures for you as well. I don't think I'm special. I just think I said yes. I wasn't paid for any of these things. They were all volunteer, hundreds, thousands of hours. None of that was in my job description. None of it was because I was working at church. It was just because I said yes. And I see that in our community as well. I see people saying yes to serving those who have special needs every month. Uh, Amihan and Johnny was talking about uh, mentoring uh, teens in our community, in the low-income areas of our community. Uh, many of us came out to campus ministry, and we got to do surveys and In those surveys i I personally got to meet six people who just landed from India and had no concept of 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 Jesus and church and say that and and give them an invitation into his kingdom. There was a a Japanese uh, gal who was walking by our barbecue, and our staff are all beasts when it comes to um, Tabling. I'm just so proud of serving alongside of, of Irwin and Rebecca and um, Kevin. Oh, my goodness, it was amazing. Kim was there, Margaret, Dave. Um, but anyways, we're hanging out, doing a barbecue, and this Japanese uh, gal was walking through. And then Kevin was just telling her, hey, come to church with us. You know, we got to know her. We talked to her for a long time. No idea what church is. And, I, and, I, and so we're trying to say, why don't you just come? We'll pick you up in a car. It's normal in California. People just jump into strangers' cars and we'll take you here, you know. And I was like, there's another Japanese woman. Her name's Hiroko. We're, like, super close friends. She'll take care of you, right? Like, she'll love you. Hi, Hiroko. And and then Kevin was sharing a story about how at another campus ministry, a Japanese gal who just landed, was invited in, became Christian, felt called to ministry, went to seminary. And then landed back in Japan and shared the gospel. We're not just handing out surveys. We're inviting people into the kingdom. Would you, would you do that with us? I just think there's such a unique opportunity this year. You know, uh, uh, it's probably a hyperbole, but I remember this call, uh, this article written after World War II where Japan was decimated. And there were missionaries who landed. And there were so many hungry for the gospel. And the missionary said, we don't have enough people to share, please send more people, send more people. But they were seen as the enemy. So very few people came. And that opportunity left and Japan as a society became secular and hardened in many ways. And, and that, that kind of Kairos moment was lost. When I think about our college campus, this is the year where every person I met, it's like it's their first year on campus. And they're asking questions about life and death because of COVID. And they want to connect. And we're just every week inviting you to help us because I believe that this is the year where where it's a unique moment for, for these college students to know Christ. What are the adventures that God is calling you into? How are you allowing This world, dating, marriage, career, that veil to be taken off. And to say, I'm still doing these things, but it's not the end-all be-all. My first allegiance, my focal point, the best of my time and my energy is for the Lord. And some of you are deeply called to your career for the Lord. And you should pursue it. And not let it engross you. Some of you are called to get married, pursue it, but not let it engross you. And many of you are called to amazing adventures that he has for you. The last thing I have to say this morning is that married people are not exempt. (laughs) So if you checked out and you're like, yeah, all you young people, all you single people need to do that before you have kids. I just want to speak directly to you who are married or when you get married, when you have a child, that you're not exempt from living uh, the tension of serving God and family. Paul doesn't say, okay, now that you're married, give all your attention to your wife and children. No, he says to live with a divided heart, with a divided attention and with a divided energy. I think as sub- suburban OC families, I see our tendency as we just give everything to our kids. And I would, I would say that maybe that's actually a disservice to them. Maybe they'll believe that they're the center of the universe, that, that there's nothing more important to, to your life than them. And actually having a divided heart and attention and energy serves our children. I, I think about the ways that we can serve together as a church, uh, as families. And I think that a lot of it is just allowing our family to be a presence of. Uh, for someone, like our family presence is the gift. There's a special needs bowling event on the 19th, and we do, we do special needs events pretty much every month. Can that be a part of how our family goes out and, and allow our family in the chaos, and you not having the ability to fully attend to someone, but the family, the children's laughter and cries, and you being a family, can that be the gift to our special needs community, as they watch a movie, as they go bowling? Um, what does it mean for your family to extend itself in, in rhythm, right? We all have to have dinner together. Can you invite a young adult in um, and say, "Hey, be family with us. Your family's far away. You you moved here from Hawaii. Join our family." Someone who's wrestling with same-sex attraction or who identifies as LGBTQ and says, "I'm going to live the rest of my life celibate um, for the Lord." They need families to bring them in and to say, "We will be." your family. I think about the kids who have gone through domestic violence or who uh, are foster and we have an opportunity to like hang out with them, to play with them and to babysit them through OC United. Can your family come and can your kids play with them and can we gift our presence to them? Can we serve the church together? I love that Wesley and Nathan are the first to show up on Sunday. They're moving all these big lamps, right? They walk upstairs. They set up the whole CM. Maven's here with his headphones on, hanging out. Um, That there's this sense that we are serving the church together. That they're not just here to serve us. We're here to serve uh, the family of of God and do chores with the church. Um, I think about how Lucy, Taylor, and... Beatrice is helping out with CM and how most of the youth kids came to foster camp. I think how, about how I was making coffee and Liam said, I can't wait to be 12. And I said, what happens at 12? He says, I get to go to foster camp with you. Jesse and Zach are just a part of our family. They've done dinners and swimming and bonfires with us. Uh, Liam sits with me at devotionals oftentimes And I'm like, oh, we're praying together. And so he prays. Or he opens his eyes and pokes people who are praying on Zoom. And he sees my divided heart. And it's a gift to him. And I hope that your kids will see your divided heart too. Your love for the church. You being absent for a week to serve at foster because you're telling them, hey, you have me full time as a dad and these kids don't have dads. I'm going to go be a dad for them for a week. I hope they see your heart divided and that they follow the way that, not just the way that you talk about the Lord, but that you're living and struggling to live out your faith when it's hard, when your life feels way too full, when you feel like you're you're just kind of like Um, um, treading water, they still see you try to love the Lord and serve him, and that your life is about him, even in the divide. God, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for the dreams, the adventures that you've placed in every single person here, that as they sit and quiet their heart, they hear the great plans that you have for them, And that and the courage to do it. And I pray that as they expand their capacity and feel themselves stretched, that they would come back to you and sit with you. And and their capacity would, would stretch because they are with you and in your presence. I pray that they wouldn't look around to see what the average single person, how the average single person is serving the church or the average amount of time that is given, or the average money that is gifted, that they would just do what you've called them to do, undivided devotion, a single mind towards you. And they they would trust you if they want to be married uh, with that as well. It's not something that they have to cling to. It's not their redemption. It's not what takes away their flaws. You are our Lord and King. Will we give our lives to you? I pray for the families, the kids that we have. Would they participate in ministry? Would they see their parents divided? But love them and bring them in to service to you. And would that be an investment toward their life better than any college tuition, any SAT course, any tutoring? That they would find a savior And a Lord who is real to them and who will sit with them and give them resilience and love and significance in ways that not even I can do for Liam. We love you. We thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I preached a lot this morning. But um, let's just take five short minutes we have a question at the very end and then uh, we're going to close our time with worship but if you are single how is god calling you to take advantage of your singleness to be with him and to serve him if you are married how is god calling you to divide your time energy and attention between family and service to him
1: hi this is pastor wilson again thank you for listening to our podcast if our sermons have been a blessing to you I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that supports our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Erwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast. Or you can visit our website. And your investment is tax-deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.